Uh, so I heard this story this week that was very impactful to me. It was about a guy named Gordon Wilson. He was a draper who lived in the town of Inniskillen, Northern Ireland. I don't even know if I'm saying that correctly, but we'll just say Inniskillen. And in addition to working in a drapery shop, uh, he was a devout follower of Jesus. He was a family man. And he lived during a period of time that in the United Kingdom, they typically just refer to it as the Troubles or the Northern Ireland Conflict. This lasted from about the late 60s to 1998. Some of you will remember hearing news about this. It was an ethno-nationalist conflict between Ireland and Northern Ireland, and it just got gross and gory. It was bad. And in the midst of all this, on November 8th, 1987, a bunch of folks gathered in Inniskillen to celebrate Remembrance Day. That's when they would remember all of the folks who would go, and they served in the world wars and other conflicts, and they were remembering the sacrifice, similar to like Veterans Day for us. Um, so Gordon's in attendance there. He has his daughter Marie by his side, and it turns out that the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, had planted a bomb that detonated during this celebration. And in the chaos of this, it buried Gordon and his daughter Marie in the rubble. They were unable to move, and so he ended up just holding her hand and comfort her, comforting her as she lay dying. And the author William Urey, in his book, The Third Side, recounts some of this when they interviewed Gordon about this scene and this tragedy after the fact. And he writes, no one who heard Gordon Wilson will ever forget what he said in that interview. His grace towered over the miserable justification of the bombers. Speaking from his hospital bed, Wilson described his last conversation with his daughter. She held my hand tightly and gripped me as hard as she could. She said, Daddy, I love you very much. Those were her exact words to me. And those were the last words I ever heard her say. To the astonishment of listeners, Wilson went on to add, But I will bear no ill will. I will bear no grudge. Bitter talk is not going to bring her back to life. I'll pray tonight and every night for the men who did this, that God will forgive them. And then Yuri closes and says, No words in more than 25 years of violence in Northern Ireland had such a powerful emotional impact. The BBC would later describe the bombing as the turning point in the Troubles because when Gordon responded the way he did, it rocked the IRA to the core. It was the pivotal point where the attitude started shifting because Wilson publicly said, I forgive them and I pray for them. You know, he, he even begged that nobody would take revenge for Marie's death. He pleaded with loyalists not to do that. And then 10 years later, when Remembrance Day 1997 rolled around, the head of the political party that was responsible for the attacks apologized for the bombing. And within a, a year, the conflict was over. So a decade after Gordon made his response and showed grace and mercy, the conflict subsided. Now, all of us have been in that spot that Gordon was in in one way or another. Tempted to not forgive. We've got some enemies that we need to respond to the way God tells us to. And the question is, what do you do when you get there? How do you honestly look your enemy <clears throat> in the face? and not respond based on the worldly standards that we're accustomed to? How do we get to a response God would call us to? That's what the final chapter of Jonah is getting at. 
because it messes with us to the point it makes us ask, are we okay with God loving our enemies? And it asks us, aren't you glad that God loves his enemies? Jesus, uh, there's a heaviness to this today. There's a joy and there's a way forward, but there's a heaviness. God, I felt it, and I ask, as we get ready to dive into these verses that Morgan read just a few moments ago, I asked, uh, would you get us ready? Would you prepare our hearts? Would you prepare our minds? Um, bring up what needs to be brought up. If there are things uh, buried that are feel too heavy to be brought up, I pray you'll give us the courage and the strength. You'll just enable us by your power, Holy Spirit. I ask that you do a great thing. Uh, we're here. We're ready for whatever you got for us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. So to recap where we've been in this series so far, chapter one of Jonah. Jonah refuses to go to Nineveh when God says he wants him to go there and preach. So what does he do? He jumps a boat to Tarshish, and God sends a storm uh, to try to turn Jonah around, and Jonah thinks, no, I want to bail out again. Uh, he tells him, toss me overboard, which maybe we think, that's a really noble thing to do. And then we're like, wait a second, it's actually him trying to be in control, because he's probably saying, well, I really don't want to die, but if I'm laying on the bottom of the sea, you know where I don't need to go? I don't have to go to Nineveh. But God bails them out, and uh, much to his dismay, he sends a giant fish to rescue him. That's chapter one. Chapter two, Jonah asks God to save him. God says, fish, you need to go puke him out. The fish vomits, leads to the next scene. Jonah begrudgingly goes to Nineveh, shares his message in a very abbreviated, half-hearted, self-sabotaging way. He ekes out five words. And in chapter four, we get to see how Nineveh responds. Now, if there are any cartographers in this room, um, I'll just, I'd just love to give you a hug because I love me a good map. Um, and I just want to show you, if it helps... If you look on here, so Joppa, which is where the yellow dot is, kind of bottom left, that's where the ship kind of took off from, going to Tarshish. We don't know exactly where Tarshish was. We kind of guessed Spain, because that was the western edge of the world at the time, the known world. That's probably where he's going. He said, I'm going to go as far away from Nineveh as I can. But when the fish spits him back out, we assume good chance it was probably close to Joppa. And when you look at the journey he had to make to Nineveh, which is up in Assyria, uh, kind of on the Tigris River up there. Uh, that's a journey of, I think it's, it's over 500 miles, I think 550. So if you consider the typical caravan of people moving along, traveled 20 to 25 miles a day in that era of history, it could have taken up to a month for him to get there. So here he is, covered in whale-digested juices. He's still bitter. He's ticked off. And he gets really upset and what I've enjoyed about this time through the book as Craig and Jess and Lee have led us through the first few chapters is that a lot of us have heard this story. This is, in all likelihood, one of the top maybe 10 or 15 stories that even someone who has no background in church, you've heard this account. And there's, there were different focuses. As kids, we maybe thought it was all about the big fish. And then we've read through the last few weeks and go, oh, the fish gets like two verses. The point was not the fish. The fish was just an instrument of God. We may have thought it was about God teaching us a lesson. It's an old song when I was little, and it was called, Oh, Brother Jonah. Any of y'all sing that? It was like, uh, I'm trying to remember the words. It was like, Oh, Brother Jonah, uh, he learned his lesson in the middle of the belly of a whale. And how does it end? So take a tip from Jonah, my friends. You better obey the Lord. Now, some of that's true. You know, you, you should obey God. 
But what we see is, well, I don't think Jonah's learning any lessons here. He's staying hard-hearted, he's ticked off, he's, he's honked off, and that brings us to that. Even as you got older, you maybe thought the point of the book was Jonah. He's this illustration, right? And you're looking at him just be angry and be embittered, and you're going, dude, who took a dump in your cinnamon toast crunch, man? This is, you got issues here. But as we've gone through this, we realize it's really the same message week after week after week as we stood talking to the staff. said, man, it's the same message over and over. And that's, this story is about us. It makes us look in the mirror and say, oh, am I like Jonah? Do I need God to go after the walls of my heart? And so let's just dive in. Nineveh has repented. They're turning to God. And verse 1 of chapter 4 says, but to Jonah... This seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. And now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, "Uh, is it right for you to be angry? So Jonah's ticked off, because what did he say? He said, when he preached in this city, he said, the city is going to be overturned. And when he said it, he didn't really give any details, specific sins, what it'll look like, nothing. He said, it's going to be overturned. And Jonah's honked off, because where he thought, well, God's going to torch this place. The walls are going to fall, things are going to burn, people are going to be dead. No, the overturning was an inward overturning of their hearts. It was a transformation of these people. All of these pagan people who don't know Yahweh, Jonah's God, they're getting into harmony with God, but Jonah is not. He's he's just angry, praying. He admits, at least to his credit, he admits why he went to Tarshish originally. But man, he gets snarky as he's describing God's character and action. You you catch this? Because he said, I knew you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, God who relents from sin and calamity. Now see, that was how God described himself back in the book of Exodus. So Jonah uses these same good traits as an insult to God. He thinks he knows better than God. He thinks God has screwed this up, and he would rather die than God show mercy to people he thinks are his enemies. And when God questions, well, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer, which in and of itself is an answer. It's not right for him to be angry. And that brings us to this kind of theme that you've seen throughout. Jonah just has this billowing, unrighteous anger. And unrighteous anger will impact your lives. It impacted him. It impacts us in big ways. The first way is this. It makes us think that life with God isn't worth living. Right? So Jonah is watching a city of 120,000 people repent after he spoke five measly words. To give you a perspective, Shelbyville's just shy of 20,000. So we're talking about a city six times as big as Shelbyville. I think Evansville is around 120,000 people. So Jonah has watched the entire city equivalent to Evansville turn to God. And these are not just normal people. This nation of Assyria was the nastiest, most violent nation in the world known at that time. I mean, they had methods of warfare and diplomacy that were famously brutal. To give you an illustration of this, the Assyrians were known to employ sappers. What a sapper was, you took someone who was a prisoner, like a prisoner of war, uh, who you didn't value very much, and they would say, all right, when we go and we 
uh, have a siege on this city that we want to overthrow. Sapper, I want you to go start digging and tunneling under the wall because they didn't want to have to go over the wall, didn't want to have to knock the wall down. Well, if you tunnel under it, what happens? Well, it alters the structural integrity of the wall, and then the wall falls, which is great for the Assyrian war generals because the armies can storm right in, take whatever they want, kill whoever they want. But the poor sapper, uh, the wall comes down on them, they lay in a hole they're forgotten about. So this is the people we're dealing with. But Jonah's watch, and this repentance is so intense, it says even the cows got in on this. This is a miracle in front of his eyes. But what does Jonah think about it? He thinks this good, incredible thing. He says, that's evil. That's not okay. And it's a shame. Because in Luke 15, you jump New Testament later, um, Jesus had said, well, there's rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. So could you imagine in heaven when they see Nineveh repenting, how psyched they are. Look at this. Can you believe them? Him? Her? That? Wow, that cow. I don't know what that's doing, but that cow is psyched about something, and it's wearing sackcloth. Like, they are pumped at what they're seeing in this city. But Jonah can't enjoy it. No appreciation for it at all. He can't stand that his enemies are getting a little taste of God's mercy and grace, and he can't let go of that bitterness that he feels, that he's harbored the whole book. You know, who knows what Jonah had heard about these people if he hadn't any interaction with them, but he is a bitter dude. I heard a definition of bitterness from Pastor Eric Mason. You'll see a picture of him on the screen. He did a series on Jonah that you can watch on Right Now Media, really solid. He's a good, good dude, pastor from Philadelphia. And he defined bitterness this way. He said, bitterness is the fermenting of unforgiveness and anger. Chew on that for a second. Bitterness is the fermenting of unforgiveness and anger. So when something ferments, ferments, it gets more potent, it gets more intense. And the process of fermentation requires two things, sugar supply and a bacterial culture. So let's think. So we got these two ingredients, unforgiveness, we'll say that's the sugar, anger, that's like the bacterial culture. So to represent them, we'll say an apple, unforgiveness is the sugary apple, and uh, yeast is the anger, the bacterial culture. So when we refuse to forgive and we have unforgiveness, it's like you take a piece of fruit and you stuff it in a container, it starts to break down, it gets sour. Uh, unforgiveness in relationships, as it sours, uh, um, you, you can tell things are different, they can tell things are different, so can other people around, and that's bad enough, but then you add anger into the mix. Anger is usually a secondary emotion, and we're not talking about righteous anger here. It's like you add yeast into that container, which escalates the souring and breaking down process. You may thought, I put that lid on there tight, but the pressure builds with the gases. That lid pops off, explodes, makes a mess, and bitterness damages the stuff on the inside first, and it projects it outward to everybody else. When we mess with unforgiveness and anger and we become bitter, it is a dangerous combination. Because when we get to that point, we become irrational, we get standoffish, relationships are severed, enemies are created, and we end up functioning a lot like Jonah throughout all four of these chapters. And after a while, we don't want to live the way we want to live, and it seems like it would take too much work. It just seems unattainable. So I'd ask you, if that's you, and you've got an issue, you've got unrighteous anger billowing, and you're thinking, maybe this life Jesus calls me to isn't worth living, well, Jesus says that needs to go. He says that's a problem. It's killing you. It's holding you back. You're missing the purpose. And so today, will you confess that and seek his forgiveness? 
Because I tell you, if you don't find that hope and healing now, you'll never extend it to Shelbyville, which is what we're pushing towards. Verse 5 continues this little saga in the drama. It says, Jonah had gone out and he sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. He made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. I like that. Finally, a good note here. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So after Jonah refuses to answer God's question, he stakes out this spot, sets up, they call it a booth, sometimes a shelter. It's a temporary dwelling. So it'd be the equivalent of maybe popping like a tent or a little shelter of that kind. And even though Jonah's been a jerk, God just keeps after Jonah even though Jonah can't appreciate this transformation, this miracle, he keeps after Jonah. The walls of Nineveh are still standing, but so are the walls of Jonah's heart. And it's kind of funny here because there's kind of this double play. Jonah's burning up on the outside from the heat, but he's also burning up on the inside with anger. So inside and out, he is just burning up. And then God extends this little olive branch in the form of a leafy plant. And for the first time in the whole book, Jonah is happy about something. And I just want to stop and say here, it's contrary to apparently how some modern interpreters have said this, Jonah was not happy because he smoked the plant or he consumed the plant. or that There is nothing going on here, nothing hallucinogenic. Apparently interpreters have said that. Well, look at that. God provided Jonah. No, this thing was not edible or smokable. He just got shade from the thing. Okay, that's what the Hebrew text says. I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I know there's nothing about him pulling out a pipe, all right? So God has kept after Jonah, and to do that, what's he do now? Well, he sent the plant. Now he sends a worm to munch the plant, and Jonah's right back ready to fly off the handle. And it's a crazy progression, because God has kept after him, and first he sends, what, a storm. After that, he sent a fish. Then he sent a plant and a worm, and a wind, and all of these things he appoints to pursue Jonah and try to bring him back. God says rainstorm, and it dumps rain and causes a, a massive chaos. He says vomit fish, the fish pukes. He says uh, grow plant, it grows. Chomp worm, it chomps. Blow wind, it blows. All of these things are way more obedient than Jonah is. Unrighteous anger, like what he has, it, it, it's sick because it made him hope for the judgment of God that he never wanted for himself. It does the same thing with us. Unrighteous anger, it makes us want God to judge other people, but not to do that with us. It, it, it's this way with driving. You know, we want all the grace when we go past a cop and we, we're 10 miles over the speed limit. But someone passes us, endangers us, cuts us off, breaks the law, whatever, we're, no, we want, we, we, we want them to get gotten, and fast. Maybe coming to church, like, hey, John, John Cooper, can you, uh, can you run this plate for me, man? <laughs> yeah. That's how we are. That's how we act. And why? Well, because that lets, it justifies us staying where we are. The status quo is a tempting, tempting thing. So why would we change if we're just not as bad as everybody else? Pastor Ben Stewart, I heard him talk about this, and he talks about this is kind of draws, drives our, our tendency to compare ourselves to other people. So, you know, maybe it's, well, I've got more money than them, 
and, and so I'll be good. We, we come up with these little crutches, these little things. Maybe it's, well, I'm better looking than them, got nicer clothes, more possessions, my wit's way quicker, my grades are way better, I've accomplished way more. All of this stuff we, we bring up and we, we do it to kind of pad the fact that we want to be seen as better than we are. We don't want, we don't want the judgment of God, but we want others to have to eat it. So I ask, if that's where you're at today, and you're hoping God's judgment on others, you willing to confess that? Consider repenting about that? Because this is how this story starts to draw to a close, last three verses. Verse 9 says, but God said to Jonah, after he says he wants to die, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, but you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. And, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So God questions Jonah again. The first time, when he asked him if it was just for him to be upset about showing mercy to the Ninevites, Jonah didn't answer. And now he asked him, well, is it fair for you to be upset about this plant? And it really frames things out pretty well, because God says, Jonah, here's the deal. You loved this little plant. You basked in the shade of this little plant. You went from throwing shade at me to basking in this plant, thinking life was pretty sweet. And you didn't plant the thing. You didn't water the thing. You didn't tend the thing. You didn't spray miracle grow on the thing. You didn't do anything for this plant. It dies. You're freaking out. If you could be that enamored with a plant, don't you think that 120,000 people made in my image that I, I could love them enough to want to show them the grace that I'm offering to you? you know, God, God even mentions the animals. He keeps mentioning the animals. I love that because I love me a good cow. Show me a Hereford cow and you show me a friend. I love Hereford cattle. I grew up, I grew up with them, understand? I, it's not just this weird misplaced thing, right? We raised Hereford cattle. Now, you see what it said? It said they couldn't tell their right hand from their left. Does this mean they knew nothing about right from wrong? Well, no, probably not. They probably had ways that they approached laws and their land and tried to pursue justice. But what God's saying is he's saying, hey, here, here's the deal. They're still responsible for their actions, but they got a blind spot. And it's not just a political, governmental blind spot. This is a spiritual blind spot that is perverting everything about how they live. And I, I've met them with their mercy. And Jonah, you're, you just hate that. Jonah, you can't handle that. And I don't get it. Because here's the third thing. Unrighteous anger, it makes you miss opportunities to be merciful the way God is merciful. You know, imagine if Jonah had seen this and softened his heart and gone down, he probably could have gone and preached to them, and they'd say, tell us more, bro. Tell us, master. Speak it. How do we know this God? He wants no part of that. When I was in elementary school, I think it was fifth grade, if I remember right, there was this kid who just had it out for me, just always making comments, being sarcastic, picking at me. Just, it was just obnoxious. He wasn't really I wouldn't classify him as like a bully, but he was just, he just got on my nerves. I just couldn't stand it. And one day we go out to recess and they had taken down a bunch of the chain link fence, but left these big tall poles. So they made these massive mega, um, what were we playing? We were playing tetherball on these things. And you get in a line, you play tetherball, then you run to the back of the line. Well, this guy is behind me in line. So we go, we'd play and then run to the back. And I'm on my way back running to get back in line. And when I did so, I cut over into the line 
and my leg was out a little bit, not intentionally, it just happened, and this kid is running behind me, and he just trips over my leg and just face plants on the asphalt and skids. And in my little 11-year-old mind, I thought, ha ha, the justice of God is upon us. I loved it. I thought, finally, he got what was coming to him. And he climbs up, and he's holding his face, and it's bloody, and we go up to the teacher, Mrs. Jewell. Oh, Mrs. Linda Jewell. She, she was a Jewell. She's a sweet lady. And she looked at me, and she said, hey, Michael, can you walk with him to the, the nurse's office so hold the door for him so you can get up there, and she can get him bandaged up. So I'm like, all right, cool. And I don't know if I thought in the moment, man, this is my chance. I can just kind of walk, and I'm not the one walking wounded. He is. But wouldn't you know, as we walked, and I opened the door, and we went down that hallway, God uh, didn't give up on my little turd heart. He started to work on it. And as I watched this guy just suffering in pain, just fighting back tears, I realized, oh, he's not so different than me. What he's doing is not okay. Doesn't excuse it, but it explains it. And I felt God be like, you got to show mercy to this kid because I show mercy to you. And something that day shifted. We weren't best buds, but we ended up in the same friend circle. In the next seven, eight years of school, we graduated together. We were kind of in the same group, and I learned to set boundaries and be healthy, but I, I learned to show mercy to this kid that had just been a, a pain in my rear for the longest time. So I ask you, is that where you're at? Do you have a kid, do you have a tetherball kid that just is on you? Is God calling you to confess and repent and change your heart towards them? You might be thinking, wait a minute, Mike, you just stopped at verse 11, but that literally just ended with the phrase, and also many animals. Like, God asked Jonah a question, why don't we have Jonah's answer? Like, is my Bible missing a page? No, your Bible's not missing a page. God just ends it. Mic drop moment there. And that seems weird to us, because in our Western minds, the dots have to be connected. There's got to be the answer. But this is really kind of a brilliant deal, the way God puts this whole book together, because he builds it up to this point, and shows, no, th this book is supposed to mess with us. We see, oh, it's not about the fish. It's not about just learning a lesson. It's not about Jonah himself. It's us using this book as a mirror and looking into it and asking, well, are, are you okay with God loving your enemies? And aren't you glad that God loves his enemies? Because at some point, all of us were God's enemies before God took care of that whole sin thing, so we could be reunited with him. Jonah 4 pretty much just takes a sledgehammer to our idea of what an enemy was, J just kind of like Jesus did, because, you know, Craig mentioned last week, Jesus was the new and better and perfect Jonah, because Jesus, like he said this one time, Luke chapter 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Later on in Luke 23, when when they're, they're, they're doing horrible things to Jesus, taking him to the cross, he says, he prayed this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Pastor Tim Mackey says, we tend to define our enemies as someone who either hurt us or, or that hurt someone we love. It, it could be just someone who's difficult to be around and deal with. But our tendency is when someone does something wrong to us, we take all of the complexity of who they are as a person and we boil it down to that one wrong thing. So it's no longer this person who lied, you know, they're the liar, the liar. That defines all of them. 
And along the way, we inflate our view of ourselves. We think more highly of we are. We forget and we try to act like we're the exact opposite of them. That's not the reality. That's a wall that needs to be broken down. Jonah chapter 4 is calling us out of the unrighteous anger that produces an us and a them mindset. And this is huge right now because what are we doing? We're going all in. On what? Making disciples by bringing hope and healing to this community, to Shelbyville, and hopefully Shelby County after that. And the problem is not those people. You know, the, the problem that's facing this town, it's the same underlying issue all of us have. It's brokenness. It's unaddressed sin. It's unaddressed issues in our community. It's relationships left unmended. It's unhealed traumas, grudges held. And we went, when we wake up to the reality that God wants to show grace and mercy to everyone, and we need to be a part of that, all of a sudden, it's not all those addicts. It's neighbors. It's not poor people. It's friends. It's not homeless people, but people who just like us are longing for their forever home. It, it's, it's not criminals. It's fellow image bearers of God who have a big blind spot. It's not political opponents, but fellow citizens. It's not people of another color of skin, but someone who's a human being just like you are. It's not a problem that should go away. It's something to be pursued. You know, we all think sometimes, God's grace for me is great. God's grace for them, hold up. A lot of you know this guy sitting on the front of the stage. He heard me talk about him first service, so at least he had some heads up this time. But Byron, a lot of you know Byron. And before, before he was the guy, some of you all have heard his story. It's on the website, a video, just his testimony. God has done some stuff in this man's life right here. He has transformed, like, like, like you're like the Ninevite of Shelbyville, bro. And I mean that affectionately. I love you. But before he was ever a guy with hurts and habits and hang-ups and legal issues, what was he? He was a fellow high school classmate of people like Mary Popplewell, Dan Fisher, Brian and Greg Martin. You guys knew this guy. He's been around. He's always been around town. You know, he's a Shelby County kid. He wasn't always this joyful, kind dude who meets you at the door and you just feel Jesus' love whether you're ready for it or not. And he, you know, he, he wasn't always that guy. But he was always created in the image of God. He always needed God's grace just as much as I did. And, and uh, I get to stand shoulder and shoulder with this guy. So do you. You know, I didn't always know him as my brother, but he was never supposed to be my enemy. And as we're praying for this town, we're letting this Jonah series land on us and draw to a close. You know, one of the things that we've spoken a lot is Shelbyville needs revival. And you know, Shelbyville has had some revivals in the early 1900s. If you dig at the historical society, there, there's been some revivals here. But when you have a town that is 87% of people who don't follow Jesus, some because they're de-churched and had a bad experience, but many of them unchurched, they have no spiritual background or muscle memory. Y'all, this town doesn't need a revival. This town needs a resurrection. It needs to be brought back from the dead. That's what it needs. Shelby County needs resurrected. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There's a, a gal whose name was Corey Ten Boom. A lot of you have read about her. She was a Christian who lived in the Netherlands uh, during the time leading up to World War II and the Holocaust. She worked real hard with her family to help Jewish people escape the Nazis, and they got caught doing this. She got thrown along with her family in a concentration camp, saw the death of her sister, grew, grew some times. But she kept her eyes on God during this time, and in the years after the war, 
She devoted her life to helping rehabilitate all these survivors of these horrors, and she became a public speaker who went all over the world. And she was given a talk in Germany in 1946. So this is within a year-ish of World War II coming to a close, and she gets approached by one of the enemies that she encountered during the war. And the clip that we're going to watch is her account of what happened and how God worked with her to respond the way he wanted her to work in the moment. And I want to encourage you, when you watch this, it's an old recording. I mean, I think Corey passed away in 1983, and this clip is probably way older than that. So you might really need to dial in to really pay attention and catch what she's saying, especially online. If you're watching online, get that speaker cranked up so you can hear her. But this is really just challenging, convicting, but encouraging. I want you to hear what Corey has to say. So check out the screen. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin and there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel aufseers, guards in the concentration, in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian, I have found the Lord Jesus, I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done, but then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Tambom wants him here forgiven. Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. Do you know that Jesus has said that? When you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. I, I knew, oh, I'm not ready for Jesus' coming because I have no forgiveness for my sins. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. forgive? No. I can't either. But he can. Oh, 
can you forgive? No, I can't either, but he can. Pretty much sums it up, right? Are we okay with God loving our enemies? Are we glad that God loves his enemies? Um, you know, we, as we're going all in and bringing hope and healing this past fall, I, I gotta admit, I, I finished up seminary after six long years and I was so relieved, but in the months that followed, I felt God bringing stuff up to the surface from um, just a bunch of verbal and emotional abuse I suffered uh, over a decade ago. And God was saying, you got to deal with this. You got to find the hope. You got to find the healing. I had to face the fact that every minute that I was making enemies in my minds so of the people who did that was a minute I was not making disciples. That was a hard truth to realize, wow, if I'm making enemies, I'm not making disciples. And so the last eight or nine months has just been this journey. And I heard someone write one time, his name was Walter Wink, and he said, you know, enemies point you to the place where you need to heal. That's the good part of it, how God redeems it. The enemy shows where you need to be healed. And I'll tell you, it, it, is, it has been awful. I've had to go back to memories I don't want to think about. I've had to, um, to think back to that, but Jesus is going back with me. And slowly, he's changing how I view myself in response to those things, how I view those people. He's helping me show mercy and grace to those individuals who did those things, where I don't always just call them those people. I can see them as brothers and sisters who, there was no excuse for what they did, but I understand why they did what they did, and I can have mercy for them. Um, I have really not liked walking that journey but I will say, the more I extend forgiveness to each of those people who did that, the sweeter God's forgiveness for me is. It tastes sweeter, and I want you to taste that. So if that is you, and this book of Jonah is messing with you, whether it's the first time you've gone to the feet of Jesus or the last time, as we get ready to celebrate communion, I tell you, go to the feet of Jesus. Take with you what you need to confess and repent of. Take your hurts, take your habits and your hangups as you celebrate this meal and go to Jesus. We'll help you get there if you need it. I'll go with you. We'll be around up here at the front if you need it. We're just gonna read these words. Um, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he included these instructions about how worship could go the way God wanted it to worship. And he wrote specifically about how they were supposed to celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember what Jesus did. So I'm going to read these verses. This is 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 23. And Paul wrote, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on that night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's what's happening today. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You know what his death did? His death brought down that wall. So we're not enemies anymore. And it can bring down the walls that you have in your minds and your hearts between your enemies, people in this room or outside this room. So I invite you, as you go forward and you get the bread and you get the cup of the juice, go to Jesus' feet. And if work needs to be done, listen to what the Holy Spirit tells you to do.
Jesus, I pray in this time, enable us where we can't forgive on our own any more than Corey Ten Boom could. Help us forgive so that the taste of your forgiveness on us is so much sweeter. God, I pray you'd root out any unrighteous anger in us, any bitterness sitting here in us. We want to be done with this as we remember this meal that commemorates what you did. Would you keep doing an incredible thing in our lives? Would you give us the ability we don't have on our own? Whatever hurt, whatever hang up, whatever habit we're bringing to you. In your name we pray together boldly, humbly, and thankfully. Amen. All right. You can stand up and receive at the table.